signatures detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southfleet Command. What's happening? Co- context Southfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Southfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Southfleet Command. Get out of my chair. 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 We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to The Greatest Discovery, a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. The name of our podcast currently making the most sense it has all year. The most sense it ever will. (laughs) Reviewing Discovery and not Lower Decks or Picard. One theme song to rule them all was, (laughs) was how he chose to do this. Yeah, yeah. This is, of course, where everybody comes for their breaking news, right? <laughs> you know, like we're recording this in that uh, in that part. Maybe we're releasing it too, but in in a in an era of great political uncertainty. So I think we're both we're both kind of on pins and needles from that, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, both of them, both pins and needles. <laughs> yeah, I haven't really been uh, online all day. Throwing myself into work is what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't know if that's healthy. I'd rather be better at self-care. TBH. (laughs) I say be bad at self-care and then beat yourself up about that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's great. And that's really like, that's what this episode's about. It kind of is. Yeah. I'm going to say the royal you, like I'm talking about us, but like uh, you see a lot of yourself in... An episode like this, maybe. I Yeah, I wonder what writing it felt like, because it almost feels like they, the secreted, a, yeah. a an episode into existence that would be extremely timely as each episode was released. And like, this isn't even the, the release schedule that they thought that they would have when they made this season. Yeah, creepy as hell is, is what I think about that. <laughs> Does anyone find it suspicious that they mailed these episodes 10 days ago? Yeah. That probably will not be a funny joke by the time this is released. <laughs> uh, we we put that and all jokes into Rob's capable hands as, yeah. to, as to what we keep and, and what hits the floor. Let the bad jokes hit the floor. Let the bad jokes hit the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Yeah that 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 song's been on my gym playlist a long time. <laughs> I can only ever work out to music I would never listen to normally. Oh, interesting! The angriest music is what I have to listen to to get anything at all out of a workout. I've I've met a lot of people in my life for whom that is true. Yeah. When I was on the crew team in high school. The uh, there was a lot of like angry, angry rock and classic rock uh, yeah. being played in the boathouse when we would be doing our workouts, and neither of them really worked for me. Like I, I tend to want like arrhythmic things to listen to when I'm working out because I find the the beats f- fuck me up if I'm doing like curls or push ups or something like that. Oh right. My wife and I have been doing uh, spin classes. We we got a we got a video bike, and we're doing <laughs> classes on there. And uh, <laughs> and like many of the instructors emphasize, you know, using the beat to your advantage. And then uh-huh. I think what's happened to us over the last few months is like we found our favorite instructors, and we've 
uh, found our favorite types of classes. And mm-hmm. the the instructors that I've run far, far away from are the half hour bike and chill class where you're like <laughs> just biking and, and listening to fish or whatever. Like, no, that, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. Like I'm taking a metal class or a, or a club bangers class where it's like hard music. Uh-huh. You don't want to do any aerobic workout that encourages you to smoke a bowl while you're doing it. I, those two things don't go well together for me. I'm sure they work for a lot of people, but that's just not, that's, that's not what's going to get me to push through the part where I want to quit. And that's, uh-huh. I think the challenge of any physical activity, right? Yeah. It's the challenge of getting out of bed in the morning. My knees are now totally fucked up and I can't really run anymore, but I used to, I used to listen to my brother, my brother and me and go on like five mile runs. That was my, that was my run lesson. That was like the only context in which I listened to, to that podcast. Wow. And, uh, and the brother's voices blew out both of your knees. <laughs> pretty pretty powerful yeah. stuff. Pretty unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, speaking of powerful stuff, a lot of uh, a lot of catharsis and uh, dealing with past trauma in this episode of Star Trek Discovery, and uh, dealing with past trauma is something my knees could use a lot more of. <laughs> yeah, let's ice those babies down, Ben, as we get into season three, episode four of Star Trek Discovery. It's called "Forget Me Not." We get Culber's log. Medical officer's log. Off the top. He has, uh, he's been walking around the disco and he has diagnosed it with Seattle chill because (laughs) when he walks around the corridors, no one recognizes him as a living, breathing person, just like walking around Seattle. It's pretty rugged. He he opens with medical officer's log, stardate. I mean, who even knows, man, right? (laughs) Fuck. <laughs> the computer's like, must enter real star date. <laughs> Format invalid. Try again. This would have been a great time for the sphere to have become involved in the computer rather than later yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, bud. Sounds like you're having a hard time with the medical officer's log here. You want to talk about it or something? The sphere data is clippy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like you're trying to record a sad log. <laughs> Have you tried using modifiers that give a sense of ennui and angst to mm. your log? When you're me, every log is a sad log. <laughs> <laughs> and hard fought. Yeah. This walk around ends uh, in the six bay where uh, Adira is getting a body scan. We get to see that ankylosaur all up in her. That thing looked way bigger against her trunk than I would have. I guess she's like a smaller. I feel like I'm I'm wading into tricky waters here because I I read in between last episode and this episode that uh, Blue Del Barrio, the actor that portrays Adira, uses they them, but the character uses she hers, right? Yeah, and so does everyone else who who talks about her. That's why I've been using her. Right. But when I say the ankylosaur looks bigger against her body, it's not It's not the character's body. It's the actor's body. Oh. And, and so I'm, I'm already fucking up. Wow. Well, 
Wudo Barrio might have gone to the acting school where uh, you become the character so utterly that uh, that you identify your body as the character's body, maybe. Oh, da 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 da, like this in the background. What the fuck is it with you? I read that Blue Del Barrio was in like the London, some like fancy acting school in London and got cast like before finishing hmm. the program. Imagine the short timer syndrome for Blue Del Barrio at the end of that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you guys are still uh, working on your thesis project or whatever? Yeah, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be in the credits on a major television show you're not wrong about the proportionality of this thing because i think in in past sequences where we've seen like the kangaroo flap and an ankylosaur going into uh jedzia dax for instance it looked like uh it looked like a smaller deal a smaller deal to take on and right. i think what's interesting about about this episode is like when we see what happened to Adira, we don't see it going in. We don't see it going into Adira. We don't see it going into Gray. But it's clear that while Jadzia slash Ezri got a like a bean and cheese burrito sized <laughs> ankylosaur, yeah. Adira got like the super burrito with al pastor and guacamole. Yeah. You want to double up on the tortilla uh, in this case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is massive. Whether you're talking about burritos or ankylosaurs, you still want to marinate the stump. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> Them's the rules. Yep. Um, it's really wrapped around everything. And I think that as longtime stands of Star Trek, like you and I know, like the ankylosaur, once it's in, it's in. There's no playing just the tip with the ankylosaur. Right. Like when Commander Riker got his, it was a, it was a like, hey, you can hold on to this for a minute right. just to keep it alive. Yeah. This is a different situation. This is, this is permanently bonded. We used an entire tube of construction adhesive <laughs> on this ankylosaur installation. Demolishing this will be costly and challenging. Uh, emphasized in the scene once again is that Adira does not remember how she got the symbiont. Uh, she just remembers waking up in an escape pod, and that is about it. Yeah, she kind of, like, Ripley woke up in an escape pod with something inside her. It's so interesting that, like, here and in, again, I'm going to call back all the other uh, Ankylosaur episodes we've gotten on the greatest family of podcasts, like, the body trauma element is very de-emphasized in this. This is not like in Alien and Aliens. Like, the Aliens franchise really leans into a line of dialogue in this episode even goes like, it's wrapped around all of the major organs. That would be something that we would see in an, in an Aliens universe type of film and it would look traumatic and painful. Yeah, somebody would be in a robot surgery bed yeah. having it de-wrapped. De but here it looks very benign. It just looks like, uh, and even its symmetry, I think, emphasizes how benign it is. It's 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 still and center in the body in a way that does not look dangerous in its current state. Adira calls it a squid. Ankylosaur. I didn't like that. Ankylosaur is an established term. Ankylosaur is canon. Yeah. What the fuck? Everyone who has been writing us, telling us that that creators of this show listen to and admire the greatest discovery. I think, I think emphatically we know now that that's not the case. Yeah. 
Hey, did Dr. Pollard get demoted or something? Because I, th- I was under the impression that she was the chief medical officer, and I feel like they keep kind of implying that by the way she <laughs> behaves in scenes. But I noticed that Culber has three pips on his badge, and she's only got two. You know what's fucked up is they, they removed the storyline of Pollard v. Culber, where as soon as <laughs> Culber was lost and presumed dead, Pollard was like, hey, this is my job now. This is my six bay. Yeah. And then Return of Culber totally fucked her over. Yeah. She's got to hate his guts. Yeah. His mycelial network surviving guts. Give me some of that subtext. <laughs> like, we see a lot of uh, crew person on crew person hostility here. Yeah. None appears to be present inside the six bay org chart. Yeah. Dr. Pollard conspicuously not invited to the big dinner party later in the episode. So That was very hurtful, I thought. I yeah. I would hold that grudge for sure. Yeah, I'd be I'd be furious. There's yeah. so much fucking tea coming out of that dinner party. <laughs> Culber proposes uh, a couple of options here. Uh, one of them being a non-surgical method of memory therapy, and another another one uh, he proposes is has will not be popularized for another. God, I guess the timeline is super screwy. So I guess it would be in the past now mm-hmm. but ordinarily it would be in the future uh popularized by a dr bashir <laughs> in uh, in lobotomy like yeah i think if you lobotomize adira here uh i think i think a lot of the downside of the of the of the trill experience gets forgotten almost immediately yeah i uh, i actually read that there's a cut scene here where Saru says the spore data includes a extensive treatise on using lobotomy in this context however most of the text has been stained with some kind of yellow liquid (laughs) you could put anything inside my body (laughs) I would not remember (laughs) as a matter of fact when I started my work as a TSA agent on Klingon, I discovered several empties from Dr. Bashir's piss storage inside of my body cavity. It appears he did not clean up after himself when he did his surgery. Yeah, so those ideas are off the table for Culber because uh, because it's sort of like what you want to do when you uh, when you propose an idea in a pre-production meeting. You really don't want to propose any idea that you that you don't feel like you can deliver. And uh, yeah. and the third in the series of ideas that Culber proposes is going to Trill. So they go to Trill. They are way less cautious with Trill than they were with Earth. They don't do the pop out of warp well outside of scanning range right. and, and tiptoe up. They are like, they come out of uh, out of the mycelial network in orbit. And uh, they are very lucky to discover that the uh, person that greets them from Trill is uh, quite chill by all appearances. Does the continuity of that uh, bump you? Because it did me. Yeah, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was strange. I, th- I thought they they needed to explain why they would not exercise the same caution that they did when they went to Earth. It feels like uh, every jump should come with an extreme amount of caution. So their first communication with Trill begins kind of friendly. This Trill Commissioner Voss shows up uh, in a really fancy looking glass bottle. 
uh, with a label around it that says $15 room charge if opened. <laughs> That's how you know you really can't mess with uh, Trill Commissioner Voss. You want to, yeah. what I do with Trill Commissioner Voss is sort of like put him in a drawer somewhere so I won't accidentally uh, open yeah, him yeah. up. I've, uh, I'm not much of a nightclub person, but I've had uh, this happen to me at least once in a nightclub where I was trying to get myself buffer waters to oh, yeah. lower the overall bill. And then I, Commissioner Voss ended up on my <laughs> tab at the end of the night like four times. And I'm like, what? This cost $8 each time? I'll tell you what, a uh, true Commissioner Voss doesn't buffer is that wallet. <laughs> He's going into that wallet big time. Yeah, I like that he comes in a, in a carbonated variety, though. I've I've not had the bubbly Trill Commissioner Voss, but uh, Trill Commissioner Voss is kind of bubbly in this scene. He is psyched that a symbiote is returning home, like emotionally psyched. Yeah, he is. He's pumped and is happy to uh, invite them down to the surface uh, post haste. And this is another thing that bumped me a little bit which was like last episode, it was like, okay, like we got a plan, let's go to Earth. And they're, they're at Earth like almost immediately. And this was like, come, come, bring your host, bring your trill. Like we want to we want to see you. And there are a few scenes of people like talking about how they're going to go down to the planet eventually. And then they take a shuttle. Yeah. It was like, where, where did all the urgency go? Trill Commissioner Voss is, is like, yeah, uh, we're welcoming you with open arms. You can find your own way here, though. We're not beaming you down. Yeah, we're not going to give you coordinates. <laughs> One of the scenes in between the uh, planet fall and this is a scene where Saru goes down to engineering and uh, is kicking it to Stamets about, hey, uh, you got like impaled not that long ago and made me think about how our ship wouldn't be able to go anywhere if we ran out of dilithium and you died. So how about uh, revisiting the not you as the linchpin for making the discovery go? And uh, Stamets does not take this very well. Uh, he's living proof that white men can jump. I researched a non-human interface for nearly a decade before we discovered the tardigrade on the gland. It is one thing to embarrass me, right? It's another motherfucking thing to piss these guys off that we have to play against. I can jump. Anytime. And he wants to maintain that title. I thought a lot about this scene in the greater context of Stamets' character. Like, I can feel the episode and the season emphasizing his trauma and making that a big part of his, his moods. But I think the mistake in doing this is that I never really associate Stamets being a fucking asshole in this scene with that trauma because he's always been an asshole. Like yeah. when he takes it out on Tilly in the scene, I'm like, cool, that's that's season one Stamets. Like, pay it no mind. And I almost wonder if whatever storyline is unfolding with Stamets wouldn't have been better placed into a different character where we would register a difference in his personality a little more because this does not move my needle at all when when he's an ass to Tilly or anyone else. And it's okay to have assholes on Star Trek. They shouldn't have softened statements up at all over the last three seasons, but a return to season one form for me doesn't make me concerned for him in the way that I can feel the episode wants me to be concerned. I felt a little differently. I mean, I felt like he, when, when he 
dunks on Tilly in this moment crosses a line from the kind of chippiness that he has traditionally had to being like outright derisive and hostile, which I think that you need Mary Wiseman to sell as as being a line crossed. But it's it. I bought it like it worked for me. And I think that like his storyline in this episode, a lot of it happens off screen. So I feel like it's a little under written, but the thing that didn't work for you about the scene did work for me. So leave it at that, I guess. I guess we're at at loggerheads then, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, we just have to stop recording now, right? All right. I guess we'll throw it to Rob's from here. I mean, it's a shame we didn't even get to today's P1s or anything. They need to feel connected. Here's a question to drop maybe in the middle here while we're we're in between (laughs) scenes. Why doesn't Earth know where the Federation went? The mission of the episode is we got to go to Trill because Adira's symbiont is going to have the answer to where this admiral went so that we can find where the Federation went to when they left Earth. I don't understand any circumstance in which the Federation would leave Earth and go, we're leaving and we're not telling you where we're going. Ever. I have good things that you don't know about. And And, and then that's it? Yeah. I mean, Drill was in the Federation and maybe just like took a step back, but it seems like maybe the breakup was shittier between the Federation and Earth. Because Earth was one of the founding four, so... It's true. Presumably, that was a pretty major deal, I guess. Kind of a lot of questions running in the background here uh, on both mm-hmm. the last episode and this episode, and that was one of them for me. Culber goes down to Michael Burnham's apartment, which is decorated with future gigas. He's very impressed with this. When your crew is down to half, Ben, don't you take out the second bed in your quarters? I think... I think you would. Why even have a second bed? Well, what if she has guests? Then the guest walks their ass down the corridor to their own room, Ben. Hmm. That's not very uh, hospitable. Ben famously <laughs> uh, has a number of extra beds. I do, actually. I, I At my old place, I had no room for a, an old bed that I had kept. And so I like took it apart and just kept all the pieces in a closet. That's my favorite Coen Brothers film. No room for old beds. If I don't come back, tell my bed I miss it. Culber's point in this scene is Michael Burnham should take Adira to Trill, not Culber. He's like, I know that we said our medical officer would be accompanying her down to the planet, but I want to make that a lie. You know, me and, uh, and Pollard are kind of in the middle of an argument at the moment. We can't really agree who the medical officer is chiefly on this ship. So until we get that resolved, yeah. uh, I think it would be best if you took her. Yeah, with a, with a view to that, and also I'm starting to anticipate that I'm going to need to have some pretty intense conversations about uh, how to treat your shipmates with my significant other. Uh-huh. So, so I, I, I feel like I need to be here for that as well. And if you could just cover this one for me. Commander Burnham, I'd really appreciate you doing me that solid. Uh, I have something going on later tonight that I can't really tell you about it because I <laughs> because I don't know if you are invited. So if you and and the new girl can, and I, I don't know if she's invited either. So 
maybe maybe <laughs> you two could go and then um you're just gonna have to trust me you're not gonna miss anything while you're away yeah so we we have another uh another one of our classic disco exposition walks mm-hmm. where michael burnham and adira are headed to the shuttle bay together and cue the worst music cue in star trek discovery here really i think adira's theme is not my favorite wow is it the same as the one that when she was in the jeffrey's tube it is it's clearly hers now and it's i've got some complex feelings about it (laughs) you know i'm here to tell you that certain characters can rise above their theme music (laughs) to become something more. It doesn't have to own you, Adira. I I would recommend if you would like to do that to commit a crime on a scale (laughs) that is so mind-shatteringly massive (laughs) that people won't even really know what to do with it. When people think of Kevin Uxbridge now, they don't even think of the music. They think of genocide. (laughs) So that's why what I'm proposing to you is you rebrand your character. Pivot to genocide, perhaps. You're on the verge of a big, momentous life event. You could be, you know, having post-traumatic growth, and as part of that growth, I would highly encourage you to do something unspeakably heinous. Look, I wouldn't make this offer to anyone, but uh, you could spore jump to Delta Rana 4 at any time, (laughs) and I could take you under my wing, sort of mentor you. In the ways of the dude. Honestly, uh, imaginary Rashan and I are getting a little tired of each other after 900 <laughs> some odd years being the only two inhabitants of this little strip of Malibu beachfront property. <laughs> so uh, if anybody wanted to pop in, that would be kind of a relief, to be honest. <laughs> you know, if you haven't already been invited to... Uh, a social event, I mean, which it doesn't seem like you have been. It seems like the two of you maybe are free. Uh, I know everything, I, and yet I still spilled the beans. Whoopsie daisy. Well, anyways, Rashawn has a pot of tea on the on the stove, so just uh, you know, food for thought. The whole point of the scene between Burnham and Adira is to just cement the significance of them doing this together. Yeah, and to kind of like give a give them the first you know toehold in trusting each other, right? Because I think Adira is still like, "Where am I? What's going on? Who are these people?" mode, and I think Michael Burnham does a, a good job of uh, of making pals, and then they get in the shuttle and uh, start heading toward the planet, and the trill change their minds and. Uh, mount an orbital defense and shoot the shuttle out of the sky. And uh, that's the end of the episode. Just a haunting moment to uh, to see the pieces rain down on Trill. Yeah, they cut, cut to the wide shot of the Gotta cut to the, the wide shot. <laughs> Parts burning up in the atmosphere. That should be our shorthand from now on just for death in general. Like, uh, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Cut to the wide. Cut to the wide (laughs) shot. Sorry for your loss. There is a meeting in Saru's 
I think this is Saru's quarters, right? No, it's got to be the ready room because his, his quarters needs a lawnmower. Remember, it's all... Oh, right. Yeah. It's the lawn and garden center of a big box hardware store. Yeah. Saru's walls are like those of a bank corporation's office tower built in the last five years, (laughs) covered in succulents. Yeah. Culbra is there to report that he's, he's gotten to the bottom of what's eaten the crew, and it's stress. They're all fucking stressed. They're, they feel disconnected, feel discombobulated. Even Saru is under a tremendous amount of stress. And uh, Culber is just spending this whole episode going like, hey, here's a problem for you to deal with. All right, bye. Does this seem out of Culber's lane? No, I mean, <laughs> I'm just uh, commenting on the fact that he dumped responsibility for Adira on Michael Burnham and then dumped responsibility for stress on Saru. <laughs> I love how little time Culber is spending in, in Six Bay, thus confirming our theory that Pollard kicked him the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want to go talk to the captain? Fine. I'll be here doing the chief medical officering. Saru doesn't know what to do about this problem if it doesn't involve giving a speech. He's really lost here. Yeah. He's like, so should I give a speech for morale? <laughs> Culber's like, no. Then what kind of speech should I give? Culber's <laughs> like, no speeches. Something else. Maybe uh, maybe bat the idea back and forth with the computer a little bit. You know, the computer, famously good at psychology. Right. And I am aware of my own consciousness. Uh, the shuttle that contains Michael and Adira lands on beautiful Trill. What a nice yeah. looking place. A verdant garden with lots of uh, neat, different color alien plants and fish birds. Yeah. And uh, she meets she meets the gang. Uh, leader Pav, who's played by Karen Robinson from Schitt's Creek. Very exciting to see Karen Robinson in this role. And uh, she also meets Z, who is the head of the spiritual life on Trill. Right. I really kind of liked how they were introduced here as like two factions of of the government, quote unquote, right. that, that Leader Pav uh, heads. And so she, and like physically, like she's in between these two factions as its ruler. Burnham gets right into it. She starts making her case uh, for why they're there and who Adira is. And I mean, uh, Commissioner Voss, I don't trust anyone who throws around the word abomination as much as Commissioner <laughs> Voss does. <laughs> I just don't think, uh, I don't think that word should be used towards people. And so you're definitely, as a viewer, not on. Commissioner Voss's side from Jump. Guardian Z seems to be like the more open-minded one. When Commissioner Voss finds out that Adira has an ankylosaur in in her, he starts vomiting and does not stop for the rest of the scene. And like his price goes up by the minute. Like you angle on his his price tag. (laughs) Pretty soon he's going to be way too expensive for anyone. Yeah. And it's not even like that much water. One of the cases that Michael makes in this scene is that it's important to figure out what's going on with Adira so that it can heal the entire Federation. And I just don't get who that message is for in this scene other than the viewer. What? How many shits do these people care about healing the Federation? They don't care at all. How is that a, a persuasive argument? In this case, I found that strange. 
<laughs> but Michael really cares, and she's not necessarily like lawyer Picard here. She doesn't know what they what motivates these people, right. and it's like very hard for her to tell what motivates these people because like the second they find out what's going on with Adira, they're like, "Hey, maybe we should uh, kill her," and she's like, "Wait, wait, 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 what? <laughs> We're not doing that." Right. <laughs> I love that. That's Plan B. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Leader Pav is like, "All right, no killing." Get the fuck out. I mean, how many places that serve Voss have you been kicked out of? A lot, right? Everyone. Yeah. They tend to be uppity places. Um, but yeah, Z has kind of implied that he sees the potential in this because they've rung the all of the symbionts got wiped out in the burn bell a couple of times already. Michael and, and Adira are being escorted by Voss and a couple of spearmen. And uh, this pretty rapidly turns into a the spearmen are going to try and kill Adira and Michael Burnham has to Star Trek fight them and they're just no match for her. Isn't it amazing how we go centuries into the future and somehow circle back to spear as weapon? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Jedi's use laser swords, so it's it's not totally inconceivable, right? I got to believe it has something to do with all the pools on Trill, right? Like you, you're gonna need something that gets into the water without getting you wet. Oh yeah, when they when they're really low on food, they they spear those ankylosaurs and roast them up, right? Yeah, delicious. Mm. Michael Burnham shoots Commissioner Voss with impunity, like, like point blank, <laughs> phaser to the chest. Pretty hardcore, and yeah. Adira calls her on it. That wasn't Federation protocol. They think they're going to have to shoot Z, but Z is uh, catching up to them to see if he can persuade them to go to the Star Trek caves with him. And uh, that's what that's what they wanted to do. So they, they head off with him. And uh, we revisit a set that we only ever saw on uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine previously. Yeah. Nice. They, they, they had it in storage. Dust off the Star Trek caves. They've aged pretty well. They've got that fun fiber optic lighting inside. You know? Yeah, they've definitely upgraded the upgraded the Star Trek caves majorly. Back on Disco, Saru is having a conversation with the computer about different ideas for helping the crew chill out and get their mojo back. And the Disco computer is not really helping until it kind of hiccups. And we see the screen behind him go from blue Starfleet technical readout to red sphere data for a second. Mm-hmm. And uh, Saru's back is turned on this, so he, he misses when it happens. But then the voice of the computer is changing, and it's like a bunch of different female voices, differently accented, talking him through ideas of uh, giving some R&R time to the crew. And uh, rather than like immediately go to red alert and have the engineering team start pulling components out of the computer to figure out what just happened to it, he listens to this advice. At no point does Saru elevate this glitch into the area of concern, which is another thing in the column of bullet points I have under the heading, Saru should be relieved of command. (laughs) 
This is a moment in service of the story it wants to tell. It isn't grounded in the reality of what's happening on the ship, which is fine. You're really starting to turn on Star Trek Discovery, man. I I feel like the show had a better grasp of its own internal logic uh, before the last few episodes. I think that I think that's where I'm at. But I'll save the rest of my uh, the rest of my review for the end, as is customary. Okay. All right. Fine. I I didn't mean to pimp you into revealing your rating. I love in the uh, in the caves. These are the sacred caves of Makala. Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adira has to get into an old timey swimming gown before getting in. <laughs> yeah. And then she has the temerity to comment on the boxiness of the gown as if she hasn't been wearing a boxy uniform the entire time. Yeah. Who says that's not your style? What are you talking yeah. about? That's what Michael says. She's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. I wonder if uh, when you're on CBS All Access, I think you're you're allowed to do some things that you're not allowed to do on network television. I wonder if they gave any consideration to nudity in this scene because I was bumped a little bit by the idea of of changing and getting into a pool with with a gown on like it does not look I know we've seen a scene like this with Jadzia Dax with the gown but I wonder if they considered anything different and Rick Berman fought hard with the network to get Jadzia Dax nude in that scene yeah so, so you'd think just in his honor they would have yeah the uh, the Rick Berman memorial nude scene <laughs> gotta have that you know who you don't want to invite to a dinner party Adam is anyone from the mirror universe yeah Saru's invitation only dinner begins with a speech about why no one could tell Michael Burnham or Adira about the dinner happening (laughs) that everyone else is invited to yeah I mean their trauma is slightly different from the crew of the disco's trauma I guess Um, but like this is a scene where on a spectrum from Mirror Universe Giorgio to Owosakun, there is a wide representation of amounts of sincerity being brought to uh-huh. people's receptiveness to Saru speechifying and trying to like establish a tradition of, you know, affirming the choice that they made and reaffirming the choice that they made. You can tell that Saru is really like he's such a giver here. He's so willing to sacrifice for the comfort of his crew that he's actually serving threat ganglia in front of Emperor Georgiou's yeah. place setting. Beautiful, really. <laughs> Have we ever had a good dinner scene in Star Trek? I struggle to recall one that that didn't end badly. Hmm. Why don't you tell me when those whales are leaving? I feel like Lower Decks has a lot of people eating and enjoying their food. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's all like taco salads and stuff. They're, they're not very imaginative about the food on that show in a way that I feel like Discovery is. I said something general when I meant something specific, like formal dinners, state dinners even. State dinners. Don't have a lot of uh, good conclusions. Yeah. Well, they introduce Romulan ale to these things yeah. and, uh, and they go left. Why the very name is racist. Back in the Star Trek caves, Adira, she gets into the limpid pools of the Star Trek caves and gets some Geordie eyes. When eyes go white, it's always scary. Yeah, absolutely. And they have like some kind of some kind of device that's like floating in the water that's supposed to let them know if she gets into any kind of distress or not. 
it's a device that uh, that skims all the leaves and, <laughs> and, and pitch that can fall in the pool from time to time. Yeah, you got to have one of those, or or you're you know you're gonna try and have your your afternoon poolside, and you're gonna spend the entire time with that net on the big long pole. Adira and uh, Z and Michael Burnham are all in this conversation when when someone walks in and they're like, oh, I'm just here to uh, check the pH and like really <laughs> grinds the scene to a halt here while yeah. he does his business. He's like, don't mind me. I just need to add a little uh, a little of the chemicals. He's like, every Tuesday. And by the way, uh, it is uh, it is the first uh, tomorrow. <laughs> so if I could get my check now, that would be great. <laughs> But if not, it's totally fine. I can pick it up next week. It'd just be like more convenient for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, things are just as awkward back at the dinner where uh, word games pivot into uh, a scene of social immolation. Detmer looks like she's taken over by something here in in playing the word game with the group. She She gets a gravelly voiced about it it felt like a scene of possession to me in a weird way yeah i feel like her stress is maybe the biggest and most unaddressed of anyone's and it's a scene where it kind of boils over in a way that like it really gave me chills watching it like she does feel like a different character suddenly like and the reactions around the table are like hey ease off well it's almost viral the way what she does kind of spreads and and becomes the beginning of of the infighting that that continues throughout this scene it's five seven five i don't think this is it's a poem it's uncalled for officers i really like the math of that because it's like it starts with Giorgio who you, like you don't expect Giorgio to bring like a light table game to the dinner party, mm-hmm. but like she is so she is such a dark character. Like it's almost like it's tainted from the beginning because when she says it's like we're looking down on Wayne's basement, only that's not Wayne's basement. <laughs> like people like want to get in on the game, but it's it's like already turned dark and they just don't even realize it yeah. yet. Giorgio always wins the game if I never. <laughs> <laughs> so Detmer is is boiling over her haiku that she is trying to, you know, freestyle rhyme is about Stamets' blood and he gets very defensive. I mean, he, he's, he was defensive of the role he plays on the ship in a previous scene with Saru and now is kind of being attacked from all quarters about it. And... This is a scene I kind of related to, like as an only child, there is like a thing I think is ugly about myself is that I like sometimes am extremely protective of a special thing that only I get to do. Hmm. Like I love having a special thing that only I get to do. And I, I think it's like a a character fault that I I try and work on. But like it's why you're always calling our shows my podcast <laughs> with no mention of me. It's your podcast, too. I don't know, Ben. I mean, it's more Rob's than either of ours. That's true. But that, like, protectiveness that he feels, like, really spins out of control in this scene. And it's like a scene where, like, once the dam breaks, people are, you know, pushing their their plate away from themselves and getting back up 
off the off the table and walking out of the room. Have you ever seen anything like this happen in real life? Because there's something, I think you're right, like there's something familiar about the way groups work, where groups wait for a leader figure to establish what the rules of the hang are. Everyone agrees on what those rules are. Yeah. And when Detmer drops this firebomb in the middle of the table, everyone says, oh yeah, these are the rules and agree and right. agrees to start shooting. And, uh, and they blast away at each other. It's a lot of hurt meted out yeah. all, all around the room. And bonds of trust get bent and tested, right? Like Owosakun was the one like pushing hardest on Detmer. Like that's supposed to be her best friend on the ship, I think. And like getting like getting that pressure from, you know, the the corner that is supposed to be safest has gotta has gotta be part of it. I think it's a really good scene. Yeah. It's a it's a good scene for the actor who plays Detmer for sure. Yep. The visual language of what it's like to be in the pool feels very Stranger Things to me. The uh, the black floor with the liquid on top. Definitely. I for sure picked up the Stranger Things vibes as well. I wonder how hard you try to either resist or accept that idea because it's such a tantalizing shorthand that's been established. Like Everyone knows what that looks like. Yeah. It's almost something that Stranger Things screwed itself with because I feel like that's such an arresting image Mm -hmm. in those like first few episodes of that show and they never really figured out anything nearly as iconic for the rest of the series. Yeah. And like in in Star Trek Discovery, this does just feel like, okay, this is another episode of Star Trek Discovery. If if Stranger Things had, had been able to keep it up with ideas like that, Every few episodes, like I think it would have been a much more successful series. Like I've, it was, it was popular, but I kind of, it doesn't seem like it's kind of part of the cultural zeitgeist anymore. It seems like it kind of like was all anyone could talk about for a few minutes and then it's gone. Well, I didn't mean it as an indictment of the Stranger Things television program, but I think, I think it's extremely difficult to conceive of a liminal mental space on a science fiction show like consider the options right like we're on a spaceship we're in space we could go to any planet there there are miriam visual ideas to take from (laughs) from from like the bounty of possibilities there that i think i think it's a natural inclination to like remove all of it and make it plain but you can't make it white because that's the matrix and if you go black, it's going to be Stranger Things. Like I think, I think it's really hard. Adira says they should have sent a poet. <laughs> I think the effects of the threads are amazing. Yeah, it looks good. A a good solution to that problem, if if one exists, is these threads. Um, that this is kind of we should back up a little bit because they. You know, the the ball breaks that's floating around in the pool with her and Michael Burnham's like, the pH is going to go off the, out of control. We got to get her out of there. And I shook this file and it turned green. Green, do you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, when leader Pav and some more spearmen come in and want to stop the whole the whole pool party. They want to shut it down. Yeah, the music's and, too loud. Uh, 
but they agree that uh, that somebody should go in and get Adira because Adira has gone below the surface and Michael Burnham jumps in and uh, she doesn't even have time to change into a shift. It's just straight into the pool in her uniform. She took off her com badge though. Did you see that? Oh, did she? That's fun. She didn't take it off, but she went in without it. You don't want to get that thing wet. Have you ever dropped your glasses in the ocean and you're like feeling around in the sand with your toes? I feel like that's what's going on here. She's she's trying to find Adira's body and she can't. And they're like, she has to go in too. Michael Burnham was in a pool with a friend at at one point and the friend was like, you know, uh, com badges are, are totally water resistant. See, I'm... I'm- <laughs> I'm splashing my com badge around on the water, no problem. I could even drop it to the bottom. Not a big deal. Yeah. I don't see what you guys are worried about. It's advertised as water resistant, but what they don't tell you is that pool water is not the kind of water that it is resistant right. of. Uh, pan over to the, to the pool guy, nodding emphatically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because of the chemicals we put in. Right. So she finds Adira in this thready, wet, black space, and... Adira is getting like chased by these threads. Michael Burnham suggests, hey, maybe don't run away from the threads. Maybe that's a connection that it's that whatever this thing that we are inside of is trying to make with you. Yeah. You got to let these tentacles touch you, Adira. Stop kicking them away and like stomping on them. We, we can't complete this disgusting anime porno unless you let the, the tentacles touch you. All it takes is one of those tentacles to get through to make a baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Adira makes the connection and it's a series of memories like she and and these memories are hard for her to face because these are memories of her and a boyfriend, Gray, Gray Tall, I guess, mm-hmm. or it's just Gray at the beginning, but then Gray Tall after the joining because the first scene is Adira and Gray talking about what the joining is going to be like. And this is a question that uh, has been delved into a lot on Deep Space Nine. I feel like Gray has a very a very blasé idea about how this is going to go. Like, Yeah, ankylosaur implantation seems to be so safe and commonplace in the future that uh, it's not even done in a clean surgical lab. Like, Adira's in there. She's not wearing a hairnet. No, she's not wearing that red uniform with, with the weird flat hat part. No one's wearing hairnets. Yeah. You're going to get hair all up in that kangaroo pouch. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want hair in there. No. Or bottles of urine. <laughs> in a show that really does a lot of cutting around, I feel like this is the beginning of a uniquely long sequence where we stay with Adira and her story. Yeah, because it progresses. There's a moment where Adira is watching Gray play a cello or... I, I don't know my stringed instruments. I think this is a cello. I'm sure I'll be corrected on, on that. Yeah, it looks like a cello to me. You could tell that this is a Star Trek show because somebody's playing a stringed instrument. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Gray is playing this and Adira is a little bit uh, unsure of what to make of it because Gray was not a cellist before the joining. And so there is kind of a feeling of like, hey, you've changed, man. Now you're a cellist? I don't feel like I even know you anymore. <laughs> That's how it starts, the arguments about music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Gray puts it down, and there is, there's a box on the floor. Oh, what's in the box? Uh, this is something that kind of 
bumps Adira out of the memory. Adira does not want to open the box because she suspects that Gwyneth Paltrow's head is inside the box. Yeah. Uh, the box is open. Gray becomes Wrath. <laughs> Actually, the asteroid is Wrath, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the generation ship does not have shields, apparently. I think you're going to want some deflector shields on the generation ship, guys. I think that's going to be really important. Putting a lot of eggs in a very fragile basket. Yeah, what I like to do when I buy eggs at the farmer's market is throw rocks at it. <laughs> I, I thought that this was really nicely done because this feels like... I mean, it's it's got a lot of the same qualities as Picard entering the Nexus in Star Trek Generations, where it feels like a memory, but it's like an experience, but it, it feels super isolated from any other reality. Right. Like there's no other people in it. And when, and when Gray is injured and impaled on a big piece of glass or something, Adira is interacting with some kind of medical robot that is going to perform emergency ankylosaur transplantation. Medical robot uh, doesn't have a lot of bedside manner in this moment. No. Subject will not survive treatment protocols. The camera racks in really close and it's like, it says Bashir model 109 and it just starts <laughs> shooting piss all over the room. <laughs> Preparing space with <laughs> sterile solution. There's a, I, I don't know, do we skip past this part? But like what was in the box was this quilt that Adira made as a way to kind of bridge past gray with current gray. Like this is the story of our relationship yeah. uh, told in quilt form. And there's like uh, there's these little sections that denote uh, significant moments meaningful moments in in their relationship and a quilt makes a great gift for the right kind of person and i think gray uh is really touched by this before he's touched by the asteroid yeah it made me think ben uh if there was a quilt of the greatest generation or the greatest discovery uh made what would the symbols be on that quilt i i think you got to go with toilet is one of them (laughs) Toilets for sure, one. Maybe a bottle of mezcal. Maybe a, another different toilet. Right. Different backstage bathrooms, I yeah. guess. A hummus platter. Right. Yeah, with like with crudite from yeah. Safeway. Yeah. Uh, I like it. There it is. That's that's the crest. Somebody make that quilt. That would that would blow up our greatest trek Instagram account. Once we learn how the ankylosaur got into Adira, we kind of realize that this is a Ouija pool that they're in because all of the <laughs> other hosts appear as corporeal people. And and the water goes away. Did you yeah. notice that? That the floor was not no longer wet and now it was kind of this blue, like it felt like, uh, like going into an exhibit at the Monterey Bay Aquarium yeah. lighting setup that they went to. One thing I found distracting was the sucking sound of the drain during this <laughs> really emotional scene. Ajira gets to meet all of the former hosts of Tall, including Gray, yeah. who you know, lovingly embraces her and uh, and also Senna, who I guess is the is the person that had Tall before Gray. And Senna is very magnanimous and, and welcoming and, and happy to meet her. And then uh, he and all of the other former hosts cross their arms and say, Wakanda forever! 
I love the epaulette on the Admiral's uniform, the Admiral's Starfleet uniform in this scene. Yeah. That, that uniform is kick ass. A new contender for best Admiral uniform. I really feel like a lot of the Federation slash Starfleet uniforms, like the variations of them that we've seen uh, on Picard and on Discovery and on Lower Decks are, are kind of vi- similar variations on the theme. This feels like a leap outside yeah. of, of convention in a fun way. Yeah, well, he's he's a pretty recent death, right? He's yeah. like a pre-burn Starfleet uh, right. admiral. So, yeah, and like there is a Picard-era Starfleet uniform represented there. They're not all, like not everybody that had tall was a Starfleet, but a yeah. lot of them were. So right. it's, it's cool to see the kind of the progression over time in this moment. When Adira pops up out of the pool, she answers the challenge question correctly this time uh and the and the group is is totally psyched even Voss is is pretty hyped up about it leader pav is turning this into a moment of of diplomacy she's like hey this is the start of a great relationship you'll get to stay here you can live here i'll be your mentor adira gives her the big city letdown though (laughs) adira is not interested she wants to be on the ship yeah, Adira wants to go on some kind of a Star Trek, it seems. Adira's like, you don't understand all the friends I've made on the Discovery. Like In the like six or eight hours that I've known them, I feel like I've really made a strong connection. We're not just coworkers, but we're friends. Friends who invite each other to things, to social events, to be together. <laughs> they would never throw a dinner party on that ship that I didn't know about. <laughs> never. Anyway, I'm going to go back to the ship where I know I haven't missed anything. (laughs) Boy, I just admire the hell out of these trills. Like they are perfectly capable of admitting that they made mistakes and that they were wrong about things and, uh, and they're willing to do the work and look toward a future where they could maybe even consider rejoining the Federation. Yeah. Pretty cool. A lot of options open here. Put that shit in my veins, man. People admitting mistakes is like my new favorite shit in the entire world. Yeah, it it's shocking to see something like this. I'm looking for the knife behind Voss's back here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the mood that that we were more prepared for is the one post dinner with Saru, yeah. who is like sitting at the head of the table. Like the table having been be- been metaphorically flipped over at this point. Yeah, he's he's John Hammond eating the melting ice cream yeah. when Tilly comes in, and she's like, "Hey, like that didn't go the way you wanted it to, but I think it actually perversely kind of helped." Tilly uh, wants to stay behind after to help clean up, and I think that's an aspect of her character that that really grounds her in a familiar kindness that we've come to like. Yeah. Saru talks about how much he admired Pike's ability to just connect with the crew and like like do leadership in a way that made it look easy. Saru's like, for example, Pike would reach out and touch a crew person's shoulder and they wouldn't recoil in disgust. From his gross <laughs> fingers. <laughs> I, I thought this was a really nice scene. Stamets comes in clearly having 
had the riot act read to him by Culber, <laughs> but he is man enough to admit that he was pretty weak over the last uh, over the last episode and uh, has some amends to make, especially to Tilly, who uh, does a ton of awesome shit and he doesn't ever express gratitude to. And it's nice to get a little gratitude. I think this was the scene that got me more than the scene in the cave. A really good, sincere apology. Nothing better. I fucking love it. I'm really glad that they didn't show the Culber Stamet scene before that you mentioned maybe having existed. Like, I don't want the sincerity. I don't want that moment. I don't want Culber convincing Stamets to do it. I don't want the music swelling when Stamets comes to that realization that he needs to. I don't need to see his walk into that room. All I need to see is the apology for it to work. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel like you have that scene in your mind when Stamets comes in to do the apology. Like, I think it's nice writing. It's like an emotional phantom limb. (laughs) (laughs) It's like itchy. It's so itchy and I can't, there's nothing I can do about it. Right. Stamets is like, so has anyone called dibs on on the leftovers? <laughs> this Tupperware I was just going to take somewhere else, but as long as I'm here. I mean, I don't want those threat gangly to go to waste, and I know that you probably don't want them, Saru. Yeah. Do you want them, Tilly? Do you want to split them? We, uh, I mean, we've got to tie up all of our trauma threads, Ben. So we, so we get this scene here. We get another scene where Detmer finds Culber... Uh, to begin her process. And I really like the composition of this scene visually, like the language here of the light coming from within the area that that Culber lives and works. Yeah. And that Detmer has had to find it through what is a comparatively very dark corridor to get there. Yeah. I think is really nice. This was an episode directed by Hanley and Culpepper. And uh, I thought, like lighting and shot composition was very strong all the way through. And this was a particularly nice moment. I think she's one of the best on this show. She's really great. Yeah. Agreed. Um, Detmer is here to admit that she's not okay in that way that is so hard for her. And they kind of talk about how she is like dispositionally wired not to, not to show any cracks and uh, this admission was was no easy thing for her. The scene is kind of cut short because the computer announces that there's a, a surprise for all crew members in the shuttle bay. And I feel like if you live on the Starship Discovery, a surprise in the shuttle bay could be anything. So the crew assembles in the shuttle bay, uh, and then the sphere opens the shuttle bay door <laughs> and, and jettisons the crew into space. Yeah, and the ship flies off, and uh, that's the end of the show. I just don't know how Saru can walk around the ship knowing that the sphere can pop up at any point and do whatever it wants. This is all that was on my mind. Yeah. It's, it's movie night in the cargo bay is what it is. He sort of implies something about it to Culber, but not in a way that Culber no. would understand, like, the ship not is now intelligent and maybe has its own agenda. Right. Culber is like, I what? Saru? I, <laughs> the acoustics in the shuttle bay actually are terrible as a place <laughs> to watch a movie. <laughs> it's, it's nothing but hard surfaces. The reverb is insane. <laughs> 
I love the idea. Like you get an exterior shot here of uh, of watching a movie with the door open. That's neat. Yeah. I love the return of the Discovery popcorn box <laughs> as a prop. One of my yeah. favorite props. A prop that a viewer made for us a long time ago. That's true. The last scene in the episode is a little moment between Michael Burnham and Adira, who is now starting to connect with all of the memories of previous hosts. Uh, This is illustrated by her newfound ability to rock that cello. (laughs) And uh, she's playing some lullabies, and Michael Burnham walks out, and the camera kind of swings around, and Ghost Grey is there, and uh, Adira drops the instrument, and they uh, they make a pot together on a potter's wheel. What I've read is that Grey is a character on the show going forward. There's a brief bit of reference to the idea of Grey not understanding why Grey is there, and neither does Adira, but they're both just kind of like, all right, well, I guess we'll ghost this cello together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm worried that Adira is as insane as Gul Dukat, though. Right. Like, is Grey's appearance uh, malevolent? Does the cello conjure Grey, like like putting a Red Baron pizza into the oven and the Red Baron appearing? <laughs> Does it have to do with the cello is my question. Oh, uh, maybe it's a, a cello effect. Yeah. And that's the end of the episode. It kind of ends on that moment. It does. It's... Uh... Interesting place to to leave it. And I think I have some suspicions here, but did you like the episode, Adam? Uh, I liked this episode much better than the last, but um, I think a lot of questions remain about character motivations grounded in, in their realities, for me, anyway. And I think... I had a number of those questions in the last episode, and I think I think one of the questions that popped up in this one was something I couldn't get off my mind was like, in order to buy this storyline, you've got to believe that there isn't a future worth living in without the Federation. And I understand like on a micro level, that being the mission for everyone on the crew, but there seems to be like this this hum in the background of of like Federation proselytization of like going to place to place and going like, you guys know about the Federation and how great it is, right? You've heard the good news. <laughs> and and everywhere they go, they're like, we haven't had the Federation here in hundreds and hundreds of years. What's your point? I think I'd like to see that emphasized even more. Well, it's not hundreds and hundreds of years though. It was, it's as 120 years. Right. And like, I feel like in, in this future, that's within living memory. So... That's fair. I mean, I'm not trying to say you're wrong. I'm just saying like the, like that proselytization thing, like it, it feels weirder for their interactions with younger characters mm-hmm. than it does with older characters. Cause the older characters might be like, yeah, I mean like a while ago we had to step back from our relationship with the Federation because all of their ships blew up Yeah, and there wasn't any like reason to be involved anymore because we couldn't even get to the other parts of it. I think. Part of it might just be the visual language of Trill being so beautiful and peaceful. I don't feel like they're missing out on anything. And so when when yeah. Burnham tries to persuade them into 
like persuade them away from what they're thinking into her way of thinking. I'm like, why would they do that? They seem fine. And they're saying they're fine. Yeah, there is a line where Z says our society is on the verge of collapse. I don't believe And that. I feel like that is not indicated by anything else we see. Like we have to take his word for that entirely. And it it feels like they could have done something to elucidate that a little bit more. You know, show that, not just tell us. Yeah. Yeah. So questions like those are running in the background at this point in a way that they haven't previously. What about you, Ben? Pretty big fan, I imagine. <laughs> I mean, it's it's another episode that I agree has some some parts that didn't totally work for me. But uh, at the end of the day, like I I my emotional reaction to it, I think it was exactly what they were going yeah. for. So, like it's it's really hard for me to fault the episode on a couple of like you know not being perfectly cogent from a logical standpoint when it works from an emotional standpoint. Especially when that's its goal. I think that's a great point, Ben. Like it succeeded in what it was trying to do instead of for what it wasn't. Yeah. And um, this seems to be introducing a new character in Grey, who is the first trans man on Star Trek. And uh, obviously Adira is the first non-binary character on Star Trek that wasn't just non-binary from for being a kind of alien that is is non-binary and it's also a non-binary actor. They haven't said it out out loud on the on the show, but they have said it in like press releases, huh. but I th- I I thought it was interesting that those two characters are in a relationship with each other. Like yeah. I I think it maybe is like a little bit more powerful to have those characters be just characters that are also members of the crew and not have them have it be that they are like ghost lovers you know so um you know like i i am psyched that we're gonna get to explore what life is like for them but i also kind of wish that they'd like uh introduce these characters in a slightly different way but uh you know like it's a win for representation and i'm always pro that you know in a in a show a specific episode even that's about trauma uh, if I'm gray, I'm not turning my back on that window if I'm in a starship. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Keep the window in front, gray. Gray just reflexively yells, shields up whenever he walks into a room. I would not want to be on a starship if I went out like that in a previous <laughs> life. No way. No thanks. Hey, what about us staying on Trill and specifically staying here in this cave? Gray. This feels good. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know what feels good to me, Ben, is checking out our our milky pool of priority one messages. You want to see what we can <laughs> dig out of there? Yeah, let's see how let's see how milky it is today. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Ben, our first priority one message is from Trevor. It is to Mika. And the message goes like this: Greetings, she who is my wife. I finally hooked you on this goofy podcast. Thanks for sharing my love of Trek. You're the reason I've been able to make it through studying for my boards. We can do anything together. Hopefully, we can keep listening to TGD on road trips. Hey, that's sweet. Sounds like Trevor is um, an aspiring surfer. Hmm. Trevor and Mika, fortunate to not have the pre-road trip argument about what to listen to on a long drive. Yeah, 
Uh, I, I took a road trip with my wife recently, and uh, we, we don't have a good overlap of podcasts that we listen to. No one I road trip with wants to listen to my shows. Just <laughs> <laughs> weird. Friendly yeah. Fire's great. Yeah, it's the only podcast mm-hmm. I listen to. Uh, we have another Priority One message here from a particular jub, and it is to all the jubs. <laughs> and it goes like this. Guys, it's Croasis again. Here to give a shout out to Jess Cayley, Aromat, Sam, Dugers, and Greek Salad. All the jubs in all the pubs would like to thank Adam and Ben and Robs for this podcast. And also thanks to the Goose. I heat up my plate in the microwave now. Warp me. Croasis. Croasis. Like Oasis. Jub Jub to all the jubs. That's what I have to say. Are the jubs coming for the warm honeyed bosom? Is that what's going on? Are they launching a new volley in the uh, most impenetrable P1 war? The WHB is sacrosanct as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's true. Until you give us free t-shirts, the jubs. Yeah. (laughs) You aren't official unless you're t-shirt official. Unless two jubs get married at a live show of ours. Right. Or get engaged. I mean, they didn't get married. We didn't make up the rules. The warm hunting, honeyed bosom did. So, yeah. there you go. They're in charge. We just work here. Well, uh, if you'd like to get a Priority One message and attempt to get involved in the most impenetrable message war, uh, you can do so by going to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. And we really appreciate it because uh, it helps us keep the lights on around here. Top of the morning to you. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for Below the Belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality, and this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscapes.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from, what am I gonna have for dinner, to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com trek50 
to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself an Edward Larkin? Yeah, I'm going to give it to, it's a double Larkin. Uh, I'm going to give it to Reese and Bryce, who are seated next to each other at the dinner table and just uh, pick a very funny moment to be like, oh, like we could get out of here. We're out. (laughs) They're not really involved in the meltdown. They're non-combatants in any of the conflicts that are happening at the table, but they do spot a way to get out of this boring ass meal and get out of there. (laughs) So... I just, I respected their game uh, in that moment. Absolutely. And it made me laugh when they got up. Their stock went way up in that scene. (laughs) Did you have an Edward Larkin? Uh, Someone whose stock has has crashed utterly, Ben, is Saru. Saru, the Edward Larkin of this episode for me, because he jeopardizes the ship and everyone who lives on it. Uh, You've got to raise the the idea of the sphere taking control of your ship you've got to you got to raise the threat level of that moment a little bit i'm going to call it right now he's not going to be captain of the ship by the end of the season i think Whoa. i think uh, michael will take her rightful place as its captain i don't i don't think saru has what it takes damn so you think that that uh, that they are writing him toward that that's your expectation i mean i think i'm saying two separate things because I, I do truly believe that Michael's going to be the captain. I don't think it's going to be because Saru keeps fucking up, even though he's obviously fucking up over and over again. But I think they're going to find a way to make Michael the captain by the end. And I think we're wow. being sort of primed for it, given Saru isn't great as captain. Interesting. Um, I think that's a, that would be a very interesting arc for season three. Uh, I'm enticed by the possibilities of that. I think the the sphere is going to choose Michael Burnham. The sphere is going to be like, hey, <laughs> uh, ship wide message here. This is the sphere. No one told you I was here. 
Uh, so I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. Saru, come to the shuttle bay for a fun surprise. <laughs> yeah, the, once the sphere blows Saru out of the shuttle, out of the shuttle bay and alien queens him, I think uh, field promotion for Michael Burnham. Did you watch a promo for next week's episode? I wasn't able to find one, so I didn't. I wasn't either. I went to a different app to to watch just the end of the episode to see if a promo came up, and I did not. I did not see one myself. It's called Die Trying. I can tell you that. Wow. Uh, it looks like it's the episode where they meet Fifty Cent. Yeah. Well, uh, that should be pretty interesting. Uh, <laughs> Looking forward to next week's episode, but we're going to have to leave it with Rob's from here after this very long episode of The Greatest Discovery. Wow. Yeah, look at us. Really luxuriating in in the pool of this episode. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice in here. They got the water heaters on. Very inviting. The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Adam Ragusia, who has a great cooking channel on YouTube. Make sure to go check it out. And if you're looking for more Trek, remember you can always visit past episodes of The Greatest Discovery or head on over to The Greatest Generation and catch up there as well. There's a lot to discover. And don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles Greatest Trek. Those accounts are run by the great Bill Tilly, the card daddy. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of The Greatest Discovery. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.